Thanks for uh, joining. We're going to uh, discuss a little bit about science today. I know it's uh, kind of a topic that gets bad reputation at times and good reputation at times. It all depends upon what our personal beliefs about science happens to be in terms of whether or not we want to agree with science or not agree with science. And that's the kind of the problem with most discussions as it relates to science is that we don't want to look at it in terms of the empirical stories that science tells us or the application that science has for us as it relates to our uh, health, particularly as it relates to how we can go about using science in the uh, avenues of gym, in the avenues of diet, in the avenues of exercise that allows us to be better, allows us to reach our uh, potential, that allows us to improve our optimal performance, that allows us to excel in all the things that we want to excel in. Before we get started, please make sure that you have uh, liked and subscribed. Please make sure that you're giving us those five-star uh, ratings on all of the platforms. The idea that we're going to discuss here kind of comes from a clip that I like to throw out with students when we start looking at the biomechanics of how the body works. And so let's take a quick uh, listen to the clip that's going to guide our discussion here. Space tie. We're gym buddies. Damn, Neil deGrasse Tyson! How are you doing that? It's physics, Terry. It's physics. It's physics, Terry. It's just physics. It's a slogan. It's a speech. It's a, it's a line. It's a throwaway line if we really want to look at it. How can we use lines like that in combating the pseudoscience, the anti-science movements that combat us, that challenge us, that uh, limit our understanding of how the human body works and how the human body is able to optimally perform and maintain its overall health? So let's talk about that. Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard, or believed to be true, about how the human body works, and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy. Too often we are uh, looking at science based off of the slogans, based off of the PR releases, based off of the advertisements, and not looking at science based off of what science is. And that's where we get into the issues that come into the anti-science movements that challenge our ability to understand how the human body works and how the human body functions. One of the things we have to remember is that science is not a belief system. Science is not a religion. Science is a mechanism by which we're able to empirically study the world that we live in, empirically study the way in which the body works. And when we're saying empirically study, what we're saying is observe. Observe and think about what the observations mean critically. Follow logical reasoning. Follow logical reasoning that leads to a hypothesis. Follow logical reasoning that leads to an inference of the results of an experiment. When we're talking about this logical reasoning, we break it into two distinct features, two distinct paths of logical reasoning that will lead to two distinct differences in statements. If we're going to follow a deductively reasoned logical approach, that's a logical approach where I'm going to take what I see and try to use what we already know to explain what I'm seeing, we are making a hypothesis. We are deductively reasoning out 
a possible explanation without doing any true scientific experimentation. We are relying upon what other people have already experimented on and have already concluded about the phenomenon that we're studying. That's the hypothesis. It's what most people would like to think of as a guess. Some people say, oh, it's an educated guess, but it's not a guess. We're not guessing about anything when we make hypothesis. What we're doing is we're setting up an explanation that is logically sound, logically reasoned out through deductive reasoning that offers an explanation. We're going to use that explanation as a testable statement, as a statement that is either true or false, but it's still a statement of explanation. It's not a guess. After I do an experimentation, I'm then going to attempt to explain my analysis, explain my results in such a way that I'm able to infer how my results would fit into the larger picture of scientific understanding. When I'm inferring from my own experimental results, placing my own experimental results within the larger understanding of the scientific world and the scientific knowledge that we have about how the world functions, then I'm inductively reasoning and inductively reasoning to an inference that would be the conclusion to the experiment, the conclusive statement. This is what I found to be true. And this goes into another part of things about science that most people don't quite get that falls into the fact that we cannot use slogans to be science and we cannot use science to be slogans. And that is science does not prove anything. Science is going to set out to determine if I make a statement that is true or if I make a statement that is false based off of the empirical evidence to support the statement or refute the statement. I'm not setting out in order to prove anything with science. I'm setting out to show whether or not my idea is true or false based off of what the empirical evidence is willing to support. And because the empirical evidence can change and the support to the statements can change, science will always be changing. We will constantly be growing our level of knowledge about how things work, about how things function, which is why we cannot fall back on what quote-unquote science says within any of the arguments that we might have with people who are anti-science when they're going to say that they don't trust science because science is constantly changing what they say is correct or not correct because that is what science by nature is going to be doing. The grounding principles within science is that we follow the empirical evidence. We do not attempt to manipulate the empirical evidence to fit into what my worldview happens to be. That manipulation is the anti-scientific and the pseudoscientific methodology that has infiltrated many of the discussions about science. And so let's take a wander around what the scientific method is and how we can use the scientific method to our advantage in our attempts to become healthy, in our attempts to use diet and exercise to better ourselves. And we'll start with expanding upon how we go about establishing 
a hypothesis and how we can use what we're doing in our everyday life to test whether or not our hypotheses are true or false. So like I said, hypotheses are our explanations. And when we go about doing experimentations to show whether or not the explanation is true or false, what we're really trying to do is establish the causal relationship, the cause and effect relationship that exists between variables, the various factors that we encounter within our lives, and the actual outcome measure that we're looking at. And so we're in February of 2024 when we're recording this. And we're about a month into the new year where we have established our New Year's resolutions. And most of those New Year's resolutions tend to focus on the I want to lose weight goal. And so we can establish a hypothesis. And a hypothesis would simply be doing exercise will lead to weight loss. It's not an if I exercise, then I'm going to lose weight. It's the exercise will cause weight loss. And it's not about how many calories I burn. It's not about what type of exercise I'm doing. It's just the simple effect of doing exercise. And so we have this hypothesis. The hypothesis is doing exercise will cause me to lose weight. And so we take this hypothesis that I'm going to do exercise, and by doing exercise, I'm going to lose weight, and we establish our training regimen. And the training regimen is going to be the experiment. And we run the experiment. And so we're now four weeks into the experiment. And we go and we step on the scale. And the scale tells us that doing the exercise hasn't caused weight loss. We weigh the same we weighed on January 1st, or we might weigh a little bit more. But the scale says exercise did not cause weight loss. That doesn't mean that we automatically reject the hypothesis. We have to go back and say, okay, I made the hypothesis that exercise will cause weight loss. But there's variables in there that we are ignoring within the goals, because the goal is basically the hypothesis that we're testing. And the big goal that we tend to ignore in this, in terms of a what's called a confound variable, and so that's a secondary variable that's not the variable that we're actually measuring, and that is the time factor that comes into play when it relates to changing of body composition, changing of body mass by use of exercise or by use of diet. And what we do know from all of the empirical evidence we have is that it takes somewhere between 8 and 12 weeks for the normal population to experience significant amounts of weight loss. And so while I would want to say that my hypothesis is shown to be false, I may be in that part of the population that is normal that takes a little bit of time before I'm going to start noticing weight loss. And so I'm going to have to continue to run this experiment. And this is why when we start looking at experimentation, we start looking, okay, how can I use science in order to make myself better, in order to improve my health, in order to improve my optimal performance? We have to approach this as a scientist. And so while we have a hypothesis, we now have to say, okay, what is the next step in this process. And the next step in the process of, okay, I have this hypothesis, is to run an experiment. 
And the experiment that we're running is doing exercise. In, in doing exercise, we actually have to have a reproducible program, a reproducible valid program. And when we're talking about valid and reproducible and reliable, what we're talking about is we're talking about, okay, can I do the same experiment multiple times? That's reproducible. Is the experiment going to provide validity in terms of the measurements that I'm looking at? And when we're talking about validity, what we're really looking at is we're looking at are the measurements that I am looking at going to provide the same measurements every time that I do a measurement? And so if I'm using a scale for weight, I need to make sure that that scale is teared. That means it's going to measure me at zero if I happen to be zero, so that it's going to allow for the same observations to be correct. That is, I'm going to be able to provide a weight measurement each time that I get on the scale, but at the same time to make sure that my exercise program is a valid exercise program if I'm attempting to use it for losing weight. And that's not where we say, okay, okay, how much calories is going to be expended during exercise? What we're saying is, is that is the exercise regimen at a intensity level, at a volume level, at a workload, at an overload? that is going to cause physiological responses to the body that we know will cause weight loss. And this is where we have to, go once again, go back into the literature and look at other exercise regimens that have been produced that have shown to have caused weight loss. And then we talk about, okay, what about reliability? And this is where we have to make sure that we are accurately measuring what we're measuring. Once again, if we're dealing with a scale, it means that we have to make sure that the scale is going to measure zero when it's zero. But at the same time, it also means that when I am doing my exercise, I'm recording the exercise. I'm recording the exercise. I am recording how many sets, how many reps, how much time how much weight is being used so that I can reliably follow and reproduce the exercise so that I can follow a progressive manner of exercise so I can periodize the exercise correctly. Once again, that's the experiment. The experiment that we're running is this exercise experiment. And the only way to ensure that we're following an experimental protocol is to record what we're going to do, actually have it written out. Here is the training program that we're going to follow. And then record how much weight did I do? How many sets did I do? What was my rest intervals? Record what was my nutrients intake on this day? What was my nutrient intake on that day? Am I following a time-restricted eating pattern? Am I following an intermittent fasting pattern? All of those variables come into play when we start looking, okay, what is the scientific experiment that we're running? And we have to make sure that we're recording 
everything that we're doing so that we have a record of the experiment. And that record of experiment is going to allow me to go back in time and be able to reproduce the experiment to ensure that what is being done can be done multiple times. Not only be done multiple times, but be done by multiple people. And this is where the anti-scientific and pseudoscientific uh, infiltration comes into play, where we're not overly concerned with the ability to reproduce. We're not overly concerned with the ability to have valid measures. We're not overly concerned with the reliability of what is taking place within the lifestyle. And this is where we fall into the PR traps. This is where we fall into the sloganation of some of the health science aspects that we might run across. And so we set up the hypothesis. We set up the experiment. And now I want to analyze the results I'm seeing from the experiment. And this is where we have to take a step back. We have to take a step back so that we are not going to fall into a logical fallacy of relying upon the antidotes. The difference between a pseudoscientific and or anti-scientific approach versus the scientific approach is that the scientific approach is going to be based off of objective empirical evidence. And the only way I can get objective empirical evidence is to not be the person who is analyzing the responses for myself. This is where I can use any of the computer programs that are out there. This is where I can bring in a third party, somebody else, to take a look at what are the results this is where I can pull in my health practitioners, where I can pull in a friend. This is where I can use any of the various uh, tracking programs that are out there. And from there, I can actually look at, okay, what are the actual results that I'm seeing? What is the average responses that I'm seeing? What is the differences that I'm seeing? From those averages and from those differences, I'm able to determine, is this a program? That's going to allow me to lose weight. Meaning, if I'm looking at the results and I'm fitting those results into what I already know about weight loss and what I already know about how diet and exercise impact physiology, which is what was used to develop the hypothesis that exercise will cause weight loss, then I can draw a conclusion. And the conclusion can only be based off of what does the empirical evidence say. It cannot be based off of what I hope the empirical evidence says, and it cannot be based off of what I think might happen in the empirical evidence. I can only draw a conclusion based off of what does the empirical evidence tell me actually happened. How much weight was lost? And this is where people will say, oh, I, I had a significant amount of weight loss. And this is where we have to look at, okay, when we say significant scientifically, significant only comes about through statistical analysis. And the statistical analysis in terms of determining if it was significant or not is simply the indication of whether or not randomness is going to affect differences that we see. And so it's very hard to, off of myself and only myself, determine if it was significant or not. I cannot determine statistical significance. I cannot determine scientific significance off of myself. That is where we fall into the logical fallacy of reliance on the antidote. But what I can do is I can look at, okay, what were the changes that took place over the lifespan of the experiment? And this is where I know, okay, off of the time frame for causing weight loss, 
using that eight to 12 weeks, I know that, okay, I'm going to have my pretest. I'm then going to train. I'll track what happens during the training, and then I'll have my post-test, what happens at the end of the training. And based off of those differences, I can determine, was there change? Can I determine the significance of the change? Not off of myself. And this is where we fall into the anti-scientific and pseudoscientific trap of, well, it didn't happen to me, or it happened to me. We cannot rely upon what happens to ourselves as the end-all be-all for the scientific arguments being true or being false. But we can use ourselves as a case study within the various types of scientific arguments and scientific studies, and I recommend listening to that podcast. And if you're on the YouTube, looking on the, the YouTube channel, where we went through the various levels of evidence that we have, and case studies are one level of evidence. But let's say that we're working with a whole group of people that are all doing the same exact exercise, or the same exact exercise program, I should say, or following the same dietary recommendations. We can then kind of lump some, all of those individuals into a larger group, what we call a cohort. And from that cohort, we can determine the validity and the reliability of that training program, that dietary regimen in terms of causing weight loss. Same thing happens when we start looking at other avenues of scientific approach to health, like with vaccines. I know that's a super hot button topic, particularly amongst some subpopulations within our communities as to the validity and reliability of vaccines. But what we do know based off of the scientific evidence, and we can formulate a very good hypothesis, based off of deductive reasoning about the scientific evidence is that getting a vaccine reduces the relative risk for catching that communicable disease, that infectious disease. It doesn't mean it's going to completely prevent me from getting that disease, but it's going to reduce the risk for me getting that disease. And so we then can run an experiment where I would simply be one individual within the entire population of individuals who are either vaccinated or not vaccinated. And then we can determine how likely was I to get sick? Did I get sick? Did I get infected? Based off of my vaccination status. And once again, this is where we have to look at, okay, we can't do these kind of sloganicious, these kind of PR response takes to the anti-scientific and pseudoscientific approach. We have to say, okay, the hypothesis that we're testing is that vaccines reduce the chance for me getting sick. And if we look at the bulk of the evidence that's out there, that hypothesis appears to be true. Are there times where people will get a vaccine and still get sick? Yes. But we're not saying that vaccines are a 100% never going to get infected thing. What we're saying is that the vaccine is going to reduce the risk that you get sick, not that you won't get infected. Because infection and sickness are two separate things. And so we've talked about how we can approach health from a scientific perspective, looking at, okay, what is the hypothesis that we're establishing? What is, the, what is a hypothesis? And then how we're establishing that hypothesis? What are we going to do to test whether or not that hypothesis is correct or not? Once again, remember, we're not trying to prove a hypothesis. We're not trying to say, okay, I'm going to lose weight by doing a starvation. I'm not going to lose weight by running 27 miles a day. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that to prove that I can lose weight. When we're approaching 
this from a scientific perspective. What we're saying is here is the hypothesis that this causes that. And we have to be very careful when we're looking at this causes that, that we don't fall into another trap within the pseudoscientific and anti-scientific approach in which we associate correlations, that is simple relationships, with causations. That is X causes Y or A causes B. So causal relationships is a cause and effect. Exposure to A causes B to come about versus a correlative effect, a relationship in which if I see A, then I also see B. If one happens, the other one also happens. It's not that the first incidence causes the second incidence. It's just that both incidences happen. And this is where we get into trouble when we approach things within the community and within public health from a scientific approach as opposed to an anti-scientific or a pseudoscientific approach. And this is where we get into trouble when we start trying to address some of the misgivings that people have about scientific approach within the pseudoscientific community, because they're going to say, well, I got a vaccine, but I also got sick, which means that the vaccine must cause me to get sick. And the two things are not causal. They're correlative. They simply just happened. It's not that the vaccine causes the sickness. It's that the sickness is caused by the vaccine. They're two independent things that just simp that simply happened. Well, where does that leave us? What can we say or not say about the scientific approach as it relates to the way in which we can go about becoming healthy, way in which we can function optimally? This is where we have to remember that the slogans, the trust science, not morons, as some slogans get put out there, the get the jab, don't get sick slogans that get put out there, the sales pitches that we get exposed to about taking this dietary supplement versus that dietary supplement from doing this type of exercise program versus that type of exercise program. We're constantly being sent messages, messages that we can stipulate as being a hypothesis, but they're not really hypotheses. They're not trying to explain something. They're trying to get you to believe something. They're trying to get you to buy something. When we approach overall health from a scientific perspective, from a, well, it's physics, or, well, it's biology, or, well, it's chemistry perspective, from a perspective where we are applying the theories and the laws that are science to our everyday life, then we reduce the risk for falling into the traps of the pseudoscientific approach and the anti-scientific approach that we are being bombarded with. We lessen the likelihood of falling for the logical fallacies used in development of conclusive statements about why things work or may not work. A line of thought that leads to other terms that we must address as we close out this episode of the podcast. And we'll get into this in a little bit more detail in other subsequent talks. And those are things that most people don't understand when we start throwing around some terms within the scientific community. And we always hear, well, it's just a theory. If you ask what theory means to a lawyer, if you ask what theory means to a writer, it's the equivalent of a hypothesis. It's the equivalent of a deductively reasoned out explanation. However, when we start looking at what a theory means within the scientific world, within the scientific communities, a theory is our basis rationale for why things occur. It's not a guess. It's not a 
hypothesis. It's the rationale. It's the thing that we have ample empirical evidence to always point to being true. Theories in science include things like the theory of gravity, the theory of evolution. Those are theories. They are the base rationale. And the way in which the base rationale get explained and get backed up is through the laws. Scientific laws are not enacted based off of democratic votes. Scientific laws are the explanations to the theories. And so our theories are our base rationales, and the laws are what supports those base rationales. And so when we start looking at the theory of gravity, there are laws of mechanical motion that explain and support the theory of gravity. When we start looking at the theory of evolution, there are laws of selection, there are laws of adaptation that support the theory of evolution, that explain why the theory of evolution is correct, that provide support to developing a hypothesis that can test why and when evolutionary changes occur. But it's not a stab in the dark. It's not some sort of hypothetical event. It's not a guess. And so when we state things as scientists by using theories, such as the germ theory of infection, what we're saying is, is that infections come about due to pathogenic entities entering the body. That is, we get sick because we get infected. Are there other factors that come into play as it surrounds sickness? Yes. But in order to have an infectious disease, you have to have been exposed to an infectious agent, some sort of microbe, a bacteria, a virus, a prion, a fungus, that triggers an immune response that leads to you showing infection. An infectious agent that is attempting to overtake some of your physiology so as to allow for that infectious agent to grow and become more numerous. Now, I know that science tends to be kind of a scary topic for a lot of people because of bad experiences they had within their schooling. But science is nothing to be scared about. Science is simply the way in which we're going to approach the empirical evidence, the process to observe, the process to see responses, and analyze those responses so that we can understand how those responses fit within the bigger picture of the world and understanding how the world functions and how understanding how our body functions. It's not simply a memorization of facts. It's not simply a memorization of names. It's not simply a memorization of laws and terms and theories and hypotheses. It's the process by which we're able to understand what's going on through empirical, objective observations, not anecdotal, subjective feelings. And when we approach health and when we approach public health and we approach messaging that we get about health and public health from a scientific perspective, we're better able to neutralize the anti-scientific and pseudo-scientific approach that we are inundated with through our media, through our social media, through our interactions with others within our community. Understanding that my responses may be different from your responses, but we're all going to be responding somewhere along the entirety of the continuum of all possible responses 
that are available to that are available to us based off of our physiology and the scientific laws and scientific theories that govern physiological responses within my body. Well, thanks for listening. Hopefully you got a little bit out of the conversation here. If you happen to have questions or comments, please make sure you're dropping those off. Love to hear from you about things that you find troubling, things you want to get more information about. Make sure that you are uh, liking and subscribing. Please feel free to share what is being published with your friends, families, colleagues, etc. Make sure you're leaving that five-star review. Helps us out with all of the algorithms. Give us that big thumbs up like. Leave a comment. Leave a question. Make sure you're following on all of the various platforms that we're publishing out on here on the podcast, as well as on YouTube, on Substack, as well as following the quick posts that we're putting out on Instagram, as well as on threads. Please make sure you're following on threads, as well as following on Instagram, so you get those posts into your feeds.